I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Rick Foreman on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks very much. Nice to have you here. Yeah, it's nice to be here. This should be fun. So you do the Foreman Vineyards now for a long time? Oh, my gosh. I've been in the business of making wine for 46 years, 30, uh, I guess, at Foreman. I started Foreman Vineyards in 19... Well, I bought the property in 1978. Started uh, developing it then, but didn't actually start the brand until 1983. Originally, you had worked while you were a student at Stony Hill. I did. I, I went to UC Davis undergraduate and graduate school in food science and enology. While I was in graduate school the last couple of years of, of college, I worked for the harvest at Stony Hill in 1967 and then the harvest of Robert Mondavi in 1968. What were those two experiences like? Oh, they were fantastic. You can imagine. Uh, here I am, a, a student thinking that I wanted to make wine. Pretty pretty darn sure I did. Uh, very excited about it. Uh, the wine industry was just beginning to open up. You know, Robert Mondavi kind of turned the new page for the whole industry. And in 66, up to that point, there had been almost no development since practically Prohibition. I mean, there, there were eight wineries maybe in the Napa Valley. Robert Mondavi comes along and has a bright idea, breaks away from Krug and develops this extravaganza, new, whole new idea winery. And and uh, Sterling kind of followed somewhat after. But I, but going back, how did I like Stony Hill and, and Robert Mondavi? I was thrilled. I, I was a student hoping to do such a thing. And Stony Hill was uh, the first experience. And Fred McRae was a fabulous guy. And he had a sort of a a system of getting assistance. He would come to the university and say, who, who, who's available? Who would, who would you uh, recommend I uh, ask to, to work for me? And I, I was chosen, fortunately, uh, in that year. And I uh, was the first to live in a new barn that he, he built. And you know, I was all excited to go up there. And, and I'd never, I, I was from Oakland, basically. So I'd never lived in, in the country, so to speak. And, and, and then yet alone in the vineyard. So I, coming out out of academia and actually getting right involved with it and in this little tiny winery and having Fred sort of ask me, well, what do you think we should do? <laughs> I said, oh, hard. I didn't say, well, what do you mean? What should we do? Uh, I was supposed to know being a student of enology, but I got right in there and, and went after it and 
learned a great deal. I mean, it was it was a fabulous experience making Chardonnay from one of the one of the really the, the pioneers of California Chardonnay. Um, he started in 1952, and before that, Chardonnay was unknown pretty much in California, and, and remained so up until the 70s when. I guess I was somewhat responsible, but the people at Fremark, the people at, at Mondavi, certainly. Uh, so that was a great experience. And then going to Mondavi, wow, this group of people who, who were just hell-bent on making an, an impression on the Napa Valley. They had plenty of money and plenty of ideas and modern equipment. So they were willing and ready to do anything, and I was a part of it. So that was equally exciting. And then directly afterwards... To top it all off, I graduated and had rare opportunities. I mean, Bob Mondavi wanted me to be a winemaker out of school. Uh, Freemark Abbey asked me, and the people who wanted to build Sterling asked me. And so I was really very flattered, and I thought, wow, this is, this is great. Um, I have a choice, no less. But I chose, I chose Newton because I felt that at Mondavi it was still a family deal, and I was never going to get into the family Freemark, uh, I was to be under somebody, and I thought, wow, at, at Sterling, uh, I'm not under somebody. I am the guy. So Peter Newton was that. Yeah, Peter Sterling. Newton. Peter Newton. It was a paper company. Uh, he and Mike Stone owned the paper company. They had purchased property in the Napa Valley strictly as for entertainment uh, uh, on weekends, uh, getaway house from San Francisco. And they happened to buy vineyards along with it and thought, well, you know, why not? Um, they both really liked wine. It looked like it was the thing to do. People were beginning to think that maybe wine was going to catch on in California. Bob Mondavi had done it. Fremark had done it. Claude Duval had started a winery. And so they said, let's do it. And the paper business was just fabulously successful at the time. And uh, away they went. And uh, how they managed to believe that I, <laughs> I could, right out of school, uh, equip, design, build, and run a winery, I don't know. But they didn't know, and neither did I, and away we went. Because they hired you at the age of 24. Yeah, yeah, 24 years old, you know, I mean, but you know, at 24, you have no fear. And uh, so you say, say that and when they ask you, of course I can do it. What do you think? I just graduated from school. I know everything. <laughs> but I think one of, the, one of the most significant things that happened to me was being sent directly to Europe as the first sort of assignment to get my feel for what went on there, gather ideas for equipment, what I wanted to do, and... Um, so, of course, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go there. And um, my eyes were wide open. Here I was, more of a scientist at the time, having been through six years of college and chemistry, basically, and all of the, all of the, the scientific, technical part of winemaking and, and food science, chemistry, which I loved. But then being able to see the, the tradition from Europe, and I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I love this. So I, I just went, went crazy over it. <clears throat> Came Where'd back. you go? Well, uh, Christian Muex was, was um, actually in school with me, so he offered me. This was actually a little later on a, on a, on a couple of visits later, but I, you know, I went to many of the Bordeaux chateaus, uh, some all the famous Burgundy producers, including the DRC, even some fancy producers in Italy, because we were looking for equipment. Uh, I mean, mind you, this was forty-six years ago. So what was the scene on the ground? I mean, it was, it was nothing like it is now. I mean, it was really very traditional, uh, cement fermenters, of course, brand new barrels, uh, Bordeaux barrels, same barrels that we use now, but none of the fancy equipment, 
open top fermenters, uh, wood fermenters, very little stainless steel, uh, nothing like what you see today. Oh my God. I was back in, in Bordeaux. I hadn't been in a few years, uh, in last May and, uh, oh, the money they're spending. It's unbelievable. It's so over the top. You can't even imagine. But then I guess that's one, what one does when you can get a thousand or two thousand dollars a bottle. You have to make it look good. And I'm not saying it isn't. They, 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 the wines are fabulous. But so um, yes, I, I, I went to to Europe for the first time and, and proceeded to go every there every year thereafter to hone the skill, so to speak, and and keep the keep the feeling going. But I came back and Newton said, Rick, you know, we we want to make traditional wine. What what do you need to do? What do you need? I said, well, I, I think we better ferment Chardonnay in barrels, and I think we better use all board all French barrels. And is that uh, something you'd picked up from Fred? Yeah, no, well, not necessarily. Fred still has some of the barrels that I used when, or, or Stony Hill still has a few of the barrels that were there when I was there. No, they didn't believe in that. They uh, certainly it's a little more modern now, but they they he didn't like wood. And I, and as far as that goes, neither do I. I don't like the flavor of wood with Chardonnay, but we can get into that later. But no, I, I, it was strictly by going to Europe and seeing that the classic Chardonnays were fermented in barrels and all the, the classic Bordeaux-style wines were, were aged in wood. And So I, I said, well, the we, first thing we have to do is, is get really great cooperage, and, and that was barely being touched. The, Robert Mondavi was doing a little of that. Well, they were, they were certainly involved in it in a big way. Um, Hansel, perhaps Clodeval as well, but, but very few and almost no fermentation of Chardonnay in barrels. We did that, and, you know, I, we, I said, you know, we need to plant Merlot. I, I think Merlot might be fascinating, and we were probably, I think, Louis Martini made a Merlot for the first time in, in 67. Uh, we came out with one a blend in 68, 69. In the 68, I fermented with the cooperation of Mondavi, and we blended it then with some 69, and also we had a straight 69 Merlot, so we were one of the first to make kind of a Merlot in a Bordeaux style. Well, that was novel. Sauvignon Blanc too. So, Sauvignon Blanc. Well, of course, Mondavi had really introduced Sauvignon Blanc when he introduced what, what they called Fumé Blanc. I mean, he, he lit Sauvignon Blanc absolutely on fire. And so I certainly could make no claims to that, although I really tried to make a very Bordeaux style Sauvignon Blanc. And it's interesting. I just saw an article um, that it goes all the way back and they were reviewing my Sauvignon Blancs, calling them classic. And one, one of them they liked very much was the 67 Sauvignon Blanc I made at Sterling. And, and uh, Frank Altamira, a close friend of ours, gave me two bottles of it about two years ago that he'd had in his cellar. And I thought, oh my God, this can't be any good. And we opened it and my God, it was as fresh as a daisy. I could not believe it. It was fabulous. Uh, and I'd be very critical if it wasn't because I, I don't like old wine. But, but it was surprisingly alive. I have one bottle left and I, I don't know when I'm going to try it, but I can hardly wait. Yeah, so w there we are. I'm, I'm, um, you were there for 10 years. Yeah, I stayed at Sterling for 10 years. Just had a fabulous time. I mean, it was so much fun working with Cabernet Merlot, Cabernet Franc. Uh, we even planted Petit Verdot, uh, the first certainly to do that. Uh, the Chardonnay was, was a lot of fun making. Uh, I really produced a style that I'm, I'm still strictly adhering to with, with the Foreman Chardonnay. Some people say no mallow for a Rick. Well, no, no. I, 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 I was really just in love with the way Burgundy was made. And I thought that 
Chardonnay and Burgundy was was one of the finest wines in the world. I, I liked the flavor of it, and I wanted to do it. But I also realized that Chardonnay, and at least in the upper valley of the Napa Valley, was not going to handle Mallow. Chardonnay, if it's going to be good, in my opinion, has to have pretty high acidity. So I said, yeah, okay, let's do Chardonnay. Let's ferment it in barrels. Let's do Surly's aging, which nobody even dreamed of. Uh, they couldn't imagine what that was all about. But I felt that it was important, and it was. And then I said, no, you know, the Mallow, I know. I love the flavor of it. If it comes from grapes grown where the where the acid is almost intolerable before mallow, but we certainly don't have that, and the wine's not going to be very good if we allow a nicely balanced wine to go through mallow and then become that big flabby soapy wine that so many times it is. So I, I said, okay, we're going to make this Burgundy style wine ex mallow, and we'll see what it's like. And it was good, and I've liked it ever since, and I've done it ever since, no matter what vineyard I'm working with. For the last 30 years, I've been working with the same vineyard, Rutherford Star. And, the, you know, the, the wines age. Oh, <laughs> Some of the wines 30 years ago are still good. It produces this incredible mineral-laced kind of, after it ages, creme brulee, uh, hazelnut aromas, still fresh, not dead in your mouth. Certainly not a lot of that buttery character, which many people like, and which I do too if it's balanced. But so that this was this was the Chardonnay we we started and, and I'm still doing and, and still having fun with. You developed a lot of following for the Reds as well, the Sterling Reserves. I think red is always the winemaker's specialty, unless white is all one makes. Uh, and so red, yes, it's it's the dearest to my heart, and I'm the most serious about it. And I love the Bordeaux varieties. I like Pinot Noir too, but that's just not a variety that's easily made in California with our climate, or at least where where I grow grapes. That's we're not even close to the area where the best Pinot Noir is produced. But Cabernet certainly is. The Napa Valley is one of the finest areas in California. Not necessarily the best, but it's very close to being the best. And I've had a lot of fun over the last 46 years of, of making wines from Cabernet Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Petit Verdot. A lot of times I feel like yours have a lot of texture to them. Well, I, I like texture without the clumsiness of texture, let's say. I think some of the most important things one can achieve if you're trying to work with a vineyard and work with it on a consistent basis, i.e. the the chateau sort of concept, is to make the vineyard identify itself, to show itself. What is it that that Margot has that Lafitte doesn't? What is it that Montebello has that uh, you know a, a vineyard uh, not too far from it has? So vineyards have climate and they have soil and you like to have that represented in the wine. And it generally will be unless the grapes are, are so ripe that they more or less nullify what they've been given in the onset. The varietal character is there even when the grapes are slightly underripe. You need to go just a little bit beyond that underripe character because at that point you have green tannins and you have green flavors. Uh, but if you go overly uh, beyond the, the ripe stage, you lose the varietal character, really. You lose, certainly, the vineyard character. And you get a, a jammy, I'm not saying a wine that's not alluring. It is alluring. Unfortunately, it's very alluring. But it has no identity. And so, in while it's very alluring, I think it's also slightly boring after time. You know, there's, there's no intrigue. You know, it's a, a big... A, a big voluptuous thing with no brains. <laughs> it's fun for a while, but not not for a long time. Because I found your, your reds and your whites, but to age well, 
you know, the Merlot, the Cab? Well, they, they do. I'm happy to report they do because there's a good deal of acidity that's retained, which also, which certainly helps the chemistry of the wine. And there's tannin, uh, which is an antioxidant basically for the wine. And so it preserves the flavors. But I wouldn't say the wines are, are so extracted as they can be in California that, that they're offensive. Uh, they're powerful, but with elegance, I'd like to say. And they retain intrigue. They're not in your face. They come on somewhat slowly and they open up with time. And they're fun, fun to kind of search and watch as, as they grow, and even as you drink them. Sterling had an engagement with Diamond Mountain. That developed during your time. Well, we did. Uh, Bill Hill was the original purchaser, and and he started clearing Diamond Mountain, and we bought the property from Bill Hill, and finished clearing it. Uh, and Diamond Mountain, I really didn't get to work too much with it because I was just leaving Sterling to start Newton Vineyards, as the vineyard was really developing. It was a unique property, and I'm sure it still is. Very difficult to clear, and I'm not so sure we really went about it in the right way. I would do it way more differently this time around if I had it to do again. But lacking the experience at that time, we, we went after it, and I think we did a little bit of damage to the soil, which is really too bad because that's something that never comes back. At least I admit it, though. You went to Spring Mountain to help Peter Newton open Newton. Right. Peter sold Sterling to Coca-Cola two years before I left, and he had said to me, look, Rick, it's, it's not working out for us. I've got other things I need to do. This just makes the most business sense. I hope you don't mind if, if, um, if I would still like to be in the wine business, but on a much smaller, different scale. If, if I can find the property or you can, uh, would you join me later on? And I said, sure. He said, but, but stay at Sterling for a while. And I said, I would, uh, which I think helped him in the sale. And so I did stay two years. And then uh, uh, we found property up on Spring Mountain and proceeded to buy it and i did leave sterling and join peter this time not as an employee but as a partner not a 50 50 partner slightly less so not a controlling partner but nevertheless a partner and so i you know i just thought wow what an opportunity here we go and, and so i put heart and soul again into developing another winery yet again for peter and it was a extremely difficult property by comparison to Sterling. Sterling was difficult in the construction side, but the vineyards were pretty much other than Diamond Mountain, uh, flat vineyards. Because it's valley floor. Yeah, Spring valley floor, but, like but Spring, Spring Mountain, was, all, there wasn't a flat piece on it, and nothing was, had been developed, so it all had to be developed. It was a lot of clearing. I literally did the things on my hands and knees. I laid it all out, directed the clearing, did all of the irrigation myself, put an enormous amount of effort into it. It was grueling. But we had some really, really neat vineyards, and we began building a winery, and I built a small winery. We did an underground uh, cellar. Uh, there are now caves, but they uh, <clears throat> came about after I left. So I, I, again, put my heart and soul into it and developed what I thought was a, a very neat winery around a, a beautiful group of vineyards. About four years into it, I could tell that it wasn't really a partnership. And I admired Peter tremendously. He literally set the stage for my life. And so I will never, ever forget him and be thankful for what he taught me from a young person coming out of school right through a fair degree of maturity. So I have a great deal of indebtedness to him. And it's unfortunate that, that the partnership just wasn't working. But, you know, when you realize it isn't working, it isn't working. And it's 
not because you don't like someone necessarily. It's just because the situation wasn't right. And I needed to go forward in a direction that I th saw I wasn't going. So I got out of the partnership and I was, didn't know quite what I was going to do. But fortunately, while I was at Sterling, I had found some property on uh, the base of Howl Mountain and I had begun developing it uh, in the last year that I was at Sterling. And so I cleared the property and we can talk about that in a minute. And I had a place at least to go. So I, I went to that property, but I needed to consult to do something to earn a living after the dissolution of the partnership with Newton. And so I began consulting and Chuck Shaw was very, very kind to me and in, in saying, Hey Rick, I need somebody. I really don't know how to make wine. I want to start a winery. Um, would you come and consult? And so he offered me an office and a place to kind of land and, and I could, he said, you know, be, feel free to continue running your facility as, as well as, as help me. And in fact, your first grapes, I'll, I'll ferment in the winery since your winery won't be done. And that was, a, it was, it was wonderful. He, he's still a very, very close friend and he, he, he was fantastic with me, he helped me through the dissolution of the winery, the um, partnership and got me on my feet very quickly to help me not only live with a, with an income, but to, de to begin developing my winery. And, uh, so I have a lot to um, lot to say, and, and thanks to Chuck for helping me. And there was a few other consulting jobs. I helped Inglenook a little bit. I helped what is now Ladera, but used to be uh, Voltner. We put that whole project together. Oh, you know, a few a few small things. But um, what was Inglenook like at that time? Inglenook, it was still a, a classic winery, but you know, it had been taken over by what was it, United Vintners, I guess. And so it had kind of lost certainly the original touch. But they were, you know, they were trying to make great wine and they had great vineyards, I must say. But they they needed some help to try to steer them back into a direction of, of where it had originally been. And I tried, but it, it began getting so big that it was out of touch for me and I just didn't have the time to really spend with it. But, my, you know, my, my, my effort was had to be very concentrated with Foreman if I was going to get that going and <clears throat> make it into a real self-sustaining winery. And you did do that. But what was it like clearing that property? Well, the Foreman piece, um, this was a great piece of property and of course remains so today. I was so lucky to find it. I, I'd been looking for a small piece, a piece that I could afford, but a piece that was unique. And, and so I would hike through the hills. Uh, I, I pretty much decided I wanted a hillside property. I preferred hillside fruit having worked with both. And I found a piece. I found this it was offered to me by a realtor and he said, you know, I don't know what quite you're looking for, but this sounds sort of like it. Why don't you go up and look? So I went up and I, I remember walking through what we, I walked up a Creek bed up from off of, off of Howl mountain, uh, just above the town of St. Helena and kind of spread the trees apart and walked up into this, not quite a meadow. It was still sloping. And in and amongst these big trees, I saw grape stakes and the grape stakes were, little hand split grape stakes and there were enough of them still present that I could see they were five by five spacing. And I thought, Oh my God, five by five spacing. That's almost impossible in the Napa Valley. The closest the Napa Valley had ever sustained grapes was eight by eight because of course these were all totally unirrigated from day one planting through the life of the vineyard. And so I thought, well, if this is five by five and I could see some old dead vines and the, 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 the trunks were a good four to eight inches in diameter and they were, you know, they were monsters. I thought, my goodness, this soil must be remarkable. So I borrowed a backhoe from Sterling. This was I, still when I was at Sterling and, and uh, went up and tried to dig a few holes 
on the more or less flat part. Uh, and I, could, I couldn't find the bottom. It was all river run gravel and sand. And I thought, my God, this, is, this looks like Bordeaux. And so I immediately bought the property. Uh, and I thought, this is absolutely what I'm looking for. Cleared the property and planted it. And indeed, the, the first vintage, 1983, the Cabernet, was spectacular. I'll never forget being invited to um, a tasting at Draper Esquin, which it was called at the time. And they said, Rick, we have some 83 Bordeaux, and 83 was a, was a good vintage, actually, in, in Bordeaux. And amongst them was the, the Palmer, and there was Aubryon. Um, and, and, and I said, God, you really want me to come? And they said, oh, yeah, why not? You know, you've been selling us wine from... Uh, from Newton and and we know you and I did I know them all and so I came and it was all all blind tasting and there was one wine that they really loved and uh, I said oh God that's got to be the Aubryon it's killer I love it and they opened it up and it was my eighty three Foreman and I think they almost didn't like me at that point because it was just not right you know that's cra- that's stupid Foreman, Foreman can't make wine the way Bordeaux makes wine I'll, I'll you know I'll be honest with you I've never had. That Foreman Cabernet has been less than excellent. No, like, you're very kind. Had, Thank you. You know, quite a few. I don't usually say things like that. I always like them. I don't know if it's just my personal taste. You know, if they speak to what I like in wine. Mm. But every time I have a Foreman Cab, I've liked. It. I've never not liked one. That, that's very kind of you. I, I try to make them as consistently good, if not great, that I can, given the vintage. But I appreciate that. They definitely have style. What is that? Uh, it's a style which I would say is a little more Bordeaux than California because it's not usually overwhelming. Uh, I would say, and there's been a phase of how I've developed the wine and, and they have gone through a phase and they are a little bit different now, if not a lot different than they were in the earlier years. Uh, but they still have that recognition of, you know, uh, coming from the same barn, shall we say, you know, you know where they live. There's a raciness to them. There's a complexity because of the blend of the varieties there's a fruit quality that probably comes, a, a fineness of fruit quality that probably comes from the deep gravel. There's a tannin level, but not an excessively tannic level. There's a slight sort of touch of licorice, and then as they age, a little bit of violet, and then that almost mutani eucalyptus comes out, but it doesn't come out till they're quite old, what the French may call that sous-bois character, that underbrush. But they have good fruit, and I think they have more fruit now than they used to, and somewhat less of that minty character that, that sometimes uh, Leo Velasquez and, and Mouton have. And why would they have more fruit? Is that well? More? I think they have more fruit because I am I am picking them a little riper. I, I, my there's no question about the fact that California wines, California Cabernets, have evolved from being slightly higher in acidity and low and lower in alcohol to wines that are definitely riper so much so that i think you tend to like them and everybody's taste is almost changed towards that way i don't like the overripe ones the the monsters the the rubber you know almost obtuse just gaudy character that cabernet can get i prefer them when they're slightly more subtle but i do that like them right riper than i used to and mine have evolved to that stage but they still have the recognition of the vineyard they just they're just slightly more fruity a little less austere. So take me through the vintages at Foreman. Tell me what they were like to make wines in those years. And let me know when you think there was that stylistic change. Like- well, I know the vintage. But uh, the, the, the early, it's fun, funny. I have a log and I, I keep careful notes on, on every vintage. And uh, well, except for the, the 83, which was made at 
Shaw, and actually 84 was fermented at Shaw and they then aged at Foreman. So really 85 was when I really started keeping very careful logs at, at the property. And it's so funny, I, I look back on them and, and I see that, you know, I was, I was picking, picking the grapes, um, oh, 23, 23, 5, and my God, the acids were, were 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 grams per 100 milliliter, uh, fermenting them the same, but the level of maturity was just so different. And so I kept doing that up until about 19... 90. And so in 1990, I suddenly just decided, you know, I think, I think I'm going to try a little riper. And so in 1990, I, I jumped from the 23 and a half to 24 up to occasionally 25. And I really liked the results. The 1990 was gorgeous. And so I, I kind of went along in that direction and I now am continuing that. I would say it's even slightly riper, but they, the wines are never hot. They have a, a, a very luscious character. They have definitely a little more berry character than that slightly austere uh, mintiness that, that Cabernet can have when it's picked at, at those levels. I think they're appropriate for what the vineyard has. What are some of your memories from the 90s vintages? A lot of people talk about 97. A lot of people talked about 94. 90, 94 was a very ripe year. Now, well, start with 93. 93 was ripe, but unfortunately it, it, was, it didn't have the acidity to carry the ripeness. I look at 93 now, it's actually still a very pretty wine, but I, I don't think it's quite lively enough. Uh, 94, on the other hand, was a big year. It had a lot of extract, but it also retained enough acidity, so it's still alive. It's actually looking just fantastic right now. So the, the, the 94 was a great vintage. 95 was pleasant, a little more austere. A good ripe year, but not quite as, as luscious as the 94. 90, 96 was one of the best vintages of all. It was the last vintage before I had to replant the vineyard from Phylloxera. And 96 was spectacular. It just had both body and soul. Uh, really a wonderful wine. <clears throat> if somebody has that now, they'd be thrilled to drink it. 97 happened to come mostly from the Thorvilos vineyard, which I own 50% of with David Abreu. We planted that in 1985. And so I took, had to rely on most of that. And it's very, very good. It's really good. Um, until my new vineyard became uh, mature again. So we were, were talking mostly Orvilos and Star Vineyard, which is the vineyard I have that, where the Chardonnay is grown. It's from Rutherford. So 97, 98, 99, and 2000 are mostly Rutherford, Star, and Thorvilos. And then 2001, I began with the Foreman Vineyard again. And so 2001, two, three are, um, 2003, it started really getting interesting again. 2004, very, very, very nice wine. Six, six is, a, is probably beginning a, the string of some of the best wines I've ever made. 2006 was a beautiful wine. It's really looking, just starting to look kind of very, very classic. It's got a good level of tannin. It's got just perfect body. It's got classic nose. Very, very good. 2007, of course, a, a no-brainer. It was a beautiful year. Perfect, perfect ripeness. Again, good extract, good fruit. 2008, uh, everyone thought was not a very good vintage. I look at the 2008 and it's delicious. I think it's a great, great vintage. Nine, well, we're getting kind of young. 
nine is beautiful. Ten, current vintage, been ranked very, very highly. Some of the best scores I've ever had from whatever that's worth. Uh, it is delicious wine. Eleven, I had to go. I have to go all the way back to 1972 uh, to remember a year like it. Very, very difficult year. Thank God I'd been through seven, 1972 because I knew how to deal with with 2011. We had uh, huge rains during flowering, so there's very little Cabernet. And then we had rain during harvest. So what we lost during flowering, we lost another 25% during harvest. So I had to seriously select the fruit. I made 50% of what I normally make. I love the wine. The wine is probably one of the more typical Bordeaux, or it goes back to my earlier wines in style in, that, in the representation of looking like Bordeaux. It's full percent up less alcohol than normal. It's got great tannin and great color. <clears throat> very racy, very, very Bordeaux-like. Very few people will see the wine because there's so little of it. 2012 is much like 10, big, big, brawny, lovely, broad-shouldered wine. And 2013, I'm going to start sounding like the Bordelais, maybe the best vintage of the century for me. <laughs> of course, the latest vintage is always the fastest, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but I really like 2013. It's just got the most gorgeous, deep brooding fruit and dark dark color perfect acidity uh, it, it's a beauty and I'm, I'm i'm absolutely thrilled with it i can hardly wait to bring it to full development and bottle it i think it's going to be a real star what was it like working with david abru well i still do we're still partners 50 50 partners in uh, in thorvilos and i've known david well ooh, gosh all the way back to 1980 i guess we met when i was at newton and we were very, very close friends. He began his vineyard development company, and I was a partner of his in that development company, and, oh, helped him for a few years, and he was obviously off and running, and I didn't have the time to help him, nor did he need me, but we did a lot together. We went to Europe regularly together, brought back probably the, some of the first notion of close spacing, vertical trellising. Um, uh, we, we, we pioneered that in the Napa Valley and really popularized it. Uh, I made wine for him uh, starting in, oh God, I don't know what the first vintage was, but whatever it was, it's 1998 maybe. I made all of, it, all of the Abreu wine from 98 uh, through, no, it must have been earlier than that because I made quite a few vintages. I can't remember when he started, but I made that all the way th through 2000. And then I was running out of space and he, he left. Uh, but we bought... Thorvilos, the vineyard that he and I use, he bottles wine from it. I use the grapes, but don't use the label. Uh, in 85, and still farm it together. He farms it, but I'm a 50-50 partner with him. When you replanted at Foreman, mm -hmm. did you replant it with the same spacing? or No, no, I, I changed it radically. It's a good point. Uh, I could, Well, I had different equipment uh, when I first planted it, and I became so familiar with close spacing particularly since David and I experimented a lot with it by the time I was ready to replant. And so I thought, well, I'm going to definitely go close spacing. And so I, I had 3,000 vines on the one, one particular piece. I have more than that now, but then I replaced it with 10,000. So I went four, four by five and four by six. Because 10,000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, it's a lot. That's lot. That's so, a lot. I, so I have, uh, I have a much closer spaced, all vertical trellis uh, uh, vines now. Changed the clones. I have the Cabernet 337, the, the Bordeaux clone, and I have the Bordeaux clones of, of Merlot and Cabernet Franc. And then I have the 
the mother block of Petit Verdot. I took it from two vines uh, from UC Davis, which came directly from Bordeaux in a certification block and propagated it from there. And from my vineyard, pretty much all the Petit Verdot in the valley has, has taken budwood. And what about the Merlot of Foreman? Well, I had Merlot. I, I bottled Merlot on its own. Well, it wasn't totally Merlot. I bottled it with a bit of Cabernet Franc, 84 through 2000, I think. And then once Merlot kind of started falling off as, as being a, a, a premium wine, I mean, there was a period there where, it was, where there was just massive amounts of Merlot, and it was not, not kind of, it was falling off in the reputation of being premium. So I thought, you know, that's enough. And I really need the Merlot and the Cabernet. I much prefer to blend it. So it was a short period of experiment. And God, the wines are killer. They're beautiful wines. But I, I just, you know, it, I don't have that much Merlot. I have a very small block of it. And it was really necessary to begin putting it in the form. And so I, I preferred to do that. And that's where it goes now. It's all, I, I make it every year, but it always goes into the form. Not very much. Four or five percent is as much as I have. Did it surprise you? Just the parabola curve of Merlot popularity? I know. I know. It, it became, it just was so popular. And then all of a sudden, uh, it's still popular, but it, it doesn't have the flourish or, 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 or pizzazz that Cabernet retains. Yeah. And Cabernet Franc, you know, people have kind of fascinated with that. There are very few bottlings of Petit Verdot, and I can understand why. It doesn't have any particular character to stand on its own. It's strictly for blending. But it's valuable there, very valuable. What does it give? Well, it, it gives a really great tannin structure, a massive color. And there's a certain, you know, it's like the spice on its own is fine, but there's a synergism that the spice adds when it combines with the other Cabernet varieties and seems to bring them out. Hard to say. It's it, it's not good alone, but it's great in the blend. And with the Chardonnay, why do you think it's always been a small subsection of people who didn't do Mallow? That's Stony Hill, Chateau Montalena, Foreman. Why hasn't it been more people who said, you yeah, know, maybe, maybe no Mallow? Well, probably because Chardonnay was popularized as a white wine, and it's, 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 it's a chic thing to know Chardonnay. You know, uh, it's a polite thing to know that Chardonnay is the white wine you're supposed to drink. But we have to remember that Americans have a Coca-Cola palate. And having said that or knowing that, we, we know that they would really prefer sweet than, than dry, heavy than, than light. And so big, heavy, slightly sweet Chardonnays are, are, are just absolutely sought after because that's really is very satisfying for a palate that's grown up, unfortunately, Coca-Cola. This is a dig at your own boss. This is a dig at the Sterling guys. I, 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 yeah, I, I just couldn't stand it, and I, I can't stand those wines. I mean, I appreciate that the public loves them, and ninety percent of the public would much prefer that style, and that's fine. I, I can't make something I don't like myself. I have a lot of trouble drinking a lot of California Chardonnay. I, it, my my favorite Chardonnay is Chablis. Let's face it, I love it, and so I try to make that style as best I can. It's never going to taste like Chablis, but closer than most you've intersected with so many people in the history of napa valley and in sonoma let me throw out a couple names and you just tell me if you don't mind some memories mike Collini. <laughs> michael he's my closest friend he's a great guy yeah mike and i golly sakes when i started at sterling um you know i, I needed to put a team together to run it and and mike came along and and said gee i want to make wine you know, I love wine. I'm not sure I know how to make wine, but I just liked the guy. And, uh, you know, he was young. I was young. And I said, come aboard. I'd love to have you. And, and so it was a 
wonderful relationship for a very short period of time. He needed a place to stay. And um, Fred McRae at the time had lost his vineyard guy and had the house available. And, and I said, gee, Fred, do you think uh, you'd have a place for Mike to stay? He said, well, sure, send him up. So they stayed there. And of course, Fred, as everyone falls in love with Mike because he's such a great guy, you can't help but like the guy, said, you know, Rick, you're great. You've taught him how to make wine for two years. <laughs> and I like the guy so much. I want to hire him. Uh, what could I say? The guy's so good. You can't keep a guy from being moving ahead. And I said, of course, uh, Fred, go ahead. I mean, I'm, I'm going to miss him because he's been a great friend here and and he's been a uh, very helpful uh, hard worker full of a lot of mischief but still a hard worker and uh, there we are there he went but it, we we remain fast friends my wife's closest friend is Kathy is his wife and you know we go places travel together we we have a lot of fun together and he, he's a great winemaker now got 40 years at, at Stony Hill can you imagine it's incredible he knows that wine how about Robert Mondavi Oh, uh, Bob was a great guy. I'll never forget standing on the press in 1968. Here I was the second year and making wine and still in school. And I'm on the press trying to, you know, run the thing. And Bob gets up and he's like, Rick, how, how, how are you going to press it? And I'm thinking, I wanted to say, Bob, if you don't know, I sure don't know. But, but I'll, I don't know. And uh, I'll just never forget him saying that and me chuckling to myself thinking, God, here's this guy that's been in the industry all his life and he's asking me. And then I, um, I remember, because uh, I, I ran the lab, I was really great at chemistry in those days. And so I, I ran the entire analytical lab for him aside from doing a lot of the, the, the cellar work, uh, working hand in hand with Warren Wojnarski, who was in the cellar and at the same time with me pretty much at the same level. Well, no, I was, I was a little more advanced. He hadn't gone to school for winemaking. But, um, and I'd run the lab, and Bob, Bob, I remember Bob brought me up something. He says, my God, Rick, what the heck happened to this wine? It smells horrible. And so I said, well, let me see that, Bob. I think I know what's wrong. And I put a drop of, of copper in it from the lab. And I said, what do you think of this? He's, my God, it's a miracle. What'd you do? <laughs> so it was really funny. Um, great guy. He was, he was a wonderful man. I'll never forget him looking in the, in the tank, too, and God, I was working these killer hours, you know, was, I'd gotten there at five in the morning. This is the middle of harvest and it was dark out. And, you know, he's like, he's like, you know, by the way, Rick, you never did uh, end up um, discussing how much you want to be paid. <laughs> I said, oh, that, that's true. Uh, how about four fifty an hour? And, and, you know, he said, well, that sounds fine. And I thought, oh my God, he went for it. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's so many years ago. That reminds me of another story. Uh, speaking of four, $4 and 50 cents, um, I wanted to buy, this was a few years later, not too many. And I wanted to buy some Beaulieu private reserve. So I asked my wife, I said, you know, Joy, uh, I really want to buy some private reserve Beaulieu 1970 cause it's going to be a great vintage. She said, well, that's nice. I, I said, she said, well, how much is it? And I said, well, I want to buy a case. Well, she said, that's fine. How much is it? Said it's four fifty a bottle. You know, for God's sake, only buy half a case. What are you talking about? Four fifty a bottle. We never spent much money on wine. That was when first growth Bordeaux were fifteen dollars a bottle. Did you ever meet Andre Telechev? Oh yeah, I knew Andre very well. He was a great guy. I had him up a couple of times because I had some questions uh, that I was stumbling with at Sterling, and and he was kind enough to come up and help me. Yeah, no, I knew I knew Andre. He was a great guy. 
the little big man, they called him, you know, he's this little teeny guy, but he had this big, big ego and this big, strong personality. He, he was quite classic, very classic. What about Joe Heights? I knew Joe well too. I'll never forget going up to the cellar with Fred McRae and we, we were borrowing some topping wine of all things, some demijohns of, of wine. We were out of topping wine and, and Joe said, well, I've got some, come on up. And so I went up with Fred and this was in 67 and we were in the cellar and, and uh, I was looking at the tank and I saw these copper fittings on the tank. I said, gee, Joe, aren't you worried about copper? And he said, listen, young man, you haven't learned much in school yet, have you? He said that copper is great for copper. And of course it's bad if you put stainless with it and there's a there's an electrolysis, but we don't do that. See those copper fittings on the hose? And I said, oh, sorry. He was a tough, tough dude. He, he, you never crossed Joe and you never tried to tell Joe anything. He, he, was, he was classic. Has it surprised you? Has it, have you ever been taken aback by just the immense amount of change in Napa over? Oh, that, of course I have. I mean, it's, it's, it's utterly amazing. And, you know, that could be a whole other hour. Where do we start? It's, it's by and large the fact that wine has become popular in the United States. It's become shishi. And there are many people still in the United States who are very, very wealthy and they want a, a lifestyle. And so a lifestyle in Napa Valley around, around wine sounds like, you know, nirvana. And if you've got enough money, you can buy it. And away they did and do. They come up, you know, they're still being wineries built that are extravaganzas. Money is no object. Uh, you buy, a, which is difficult, I must say, buy a piece of land at an enormous price, spend an enormous price replanting it, get a, a designer winemaker and a designer uh, uh, viticulturist and um, go come immediately launch a $150 or $200 bottle of wine. Uh, it, it's, it's almost laughable that it can happen and continue to happen. Uh, these are not agriculturists. They're not uh, passionate about it. They're only uh, gloating on a way of life. And it's, it, it bothers me a little, obviously. And of course, there are still some very passionate, very, very uh, agro-oriented people in the business, for sure. But there's also a large percentage of them that, you know, I kind of wish they weren't there. Why'd you do it, Rick? You, you started it Head winemaking job at 24, wasn't so popular to do wine back then. Yeah. Not many wineries there. Nobody really knew about Napa. Why did, why did you go to UCD? Why did you get into winemaking? It kind of evolved, I should say. I was very, very fascinated with chemistry. Blew up my parents' house making <laughs> fireworks, very, very high-end fireworks, explosives, I should say. And I, I, you know, I was so fascinated with fireworks and explosives that I suppose if I hadn't become a winemaker, I'd be working for Zambelli making them. I loved it. And that kind of led me in uh, after high school into college chemistry. Uh, chemistry really fascinated me. I caught on. I loved it. It, it. it was interesting. And as I got involved in chemistry, I thought, now what am I going to really do with chemistry? Obviously, I'd gotten beyond at that point fireworks. And uh, well, you know, I also like agriculture. I like to be outdoors. Agriculture interests me. I'm really not the kind of chemistry guy who wants to sit in a lab all my life. And so I learned of the Department of Food Science. And I thought, well, that's kind of nice. I like, that sounds good. So I got into the Department of Food Science. And once there, uh, realized that they also could 
offer enology and viticulture, you know, e even more refinement. And something clicked. I thought, you know, that I really liked the thought, thought of that. That fascinates me even more. I, my family had no background in it. I came from Oakland. They had no clue. Uh, didn't even drink wine. But I, it, the whole idea of it, fermentation really interested me. And I just, the light went on and I thought, I want to do that. And so I just dedicated it. It just, it was like one of those crazy things that evolves. And you know, all of a sudden when the light goes on, it's there. And I became passionate about it very quickly. And I remain so. I'm so excited about harvest every year. You know, I'm 70 years old and here I am. I'm the only cellar worker. I do it all. And I love it. I, I, I can think of new things I want to do every year. I realize what I did wrong the last year. I make these extensive notes and I correct things. I fine tune things. I look forward to it. And I keep saying to myself, you know, one of these days I'm going to make that wine I want to make. Um, haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> Rick Foreman, he's still building firecrackers after all these years. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. This has been fun. Rick Foreman of Foreman Vineyards. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.